This is October 20th, 2019, and uh, for Tasha this morning, I'm going to uh, offer a report on last weekend's conference at Duke University in which the papers of the archives of Philip Kaplow, Roshi Kaplow, to us, uh, were installed formally uh, at Duke University. Um, I'm going to... um, speak mostly from my own talk at that conference, but also touch on that of a couple of other people, uh, a couple of other other speakers. Um, Before going, I heard from several Sangha members here who asked if it could be, uh, if, 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 if the talks there would be recorded or even live streamed. And I raised it with the organizer before going, and uh, he balked uh, just at the the complications of doing that, including getting permission from all the speakers for it to be uh, recorded. So it wasn't recorded, and uh, so this is a kind of a, a report, uh, assuming that a few people at least listening to this may have some interest in it. And it is an interesting story. Arnold Toynbee, the, the, the renowned historian in the 20th century, once said, the coming of Buddhism to the West may well prove to be the most important event of the 20th century. And Philip Kaplow was right at the center of that. He wasn't the only uh, American to bring Zen to the West. Uh, there's also, most notably, Robert Aitken. Um, but there seemed to be something, can't speak so much, I never met Robert Aitken, Roshi, but there seemed to be, be something about Philip Kaplow that uh, seemed, it was destined to bring Zen here and make it more fully American than Japanese. That's really the the challenge of of any Zen teacher, uh, who whose training was mostly in Asia, is to adapt the teaching, the essence of the teaching, to this country or, or whatever country it is, which is uh, a never-ending koan for a teacher. Uh, it doesn't didn't stop with Roshi Kaplow. I'm, I'm working on it. I've always worked on it myself. Um, it's challenging enough to adapt Zen to the West. Uh, to, it's challenging enough to adapt Zen to the countries other than where one got one's main training. So, for example... I have uh, uh, five disciple teachers, two of them now uh, authorized to teach in Sweden, one in Germany, one in Mexico, and one in New Zealand. And uh, each of those teachers uh, needed to take what they got here, uh, take it back to their own countries, and find ways where uh, the forms, the procedures, and, and... everything else that we see, 
the ways in which it fit their own countries, Sweden, Germany, Mexico, and New Zealand, and the ways in which it needed to be uh, tweaked further to be more fully in accord with those particular countries. So that's hard enough just within Western, different Western countries. But then uh, to, to adapt Zen, to, to take it from Asian countries to the West is a whole other level of, of challenge. Uh, the conference opened. The first speaker was our own Rebecca Mendelson, who uh, spent five years on staff here and then felt called to develop her uh, academic uh, abilities, and she's working on a PhD in Asian Asian religions uh, in still. But she gave a, uh, a talk on her dissertation, which is uh, the period even preceding uh, the the uh, the second world war or even the first included the first world war so just to just to just sketch out a little bit of what she she said and some of which was news to me uh, was that uh, Japan had its own Zen boom in the uh, in the early 20th century the late starting in the late 19th century 1895 the 1930, I think, is the, the span that she's been studying. And uh, this followed the, the end of the Russo-Japanese War, um, in which Japan le- was left uh, without two of its islands. That, uh, that was part of, the, part of the truce, is that Russia took two islands that Japan felt was, had always been its own. And... Um, that bred uh, a, a, a new, um, to use Rebecca's word, a new ferocity in, in the country. And one form of that ferocity, which was later to take the form of, of uh, the Imperial War, um, but earlier, uh, before, before even World War I, it, took, it found its way into Zen practice where... Uh, they had this this phrase self cultivation um, which which was largely uh, kendo practice uh, Zen practice through kendo kendo is uh, sword and staff this, the uh, the martial arts involving the sword and uh, and but the the key thing uh, that she explained to us was that uh, this self-cultivation, uh, by the way, cultivation is another word for practice. In, in Chinese uh, texts, they often use cultivation to mean practice, what we call practice. But this self-cultivation was largely for the, for the sake of the nation, for others, more than 
for individual self-development. Or I suppose you could say it's also they're developing their their abilities, their body, mind, mastery. But but always the emphasis on, on was for others, for the nation, which points to a, a strong uh, Asian uh, quality that uh, is hardly found here, where where individualism is so strong. It was news to me that Rebecca said that during this period, 1895 to 1930, uh, the motivation was not seldom, was rarely for to awaken to one's true nature, but was more for this idea of self-cultivation for for the sake of others. But it, it, it included this this ferocity again. And uh, Harada Roshi, who was Roshi Kapo's first teacher in Japan, his first main teacher, where he spent three years in a monastery with him, he brought this this martial spirit, this ferocity, to the Soto school. There are two schools in Japan, primarily two schools, the Soto and the Rinzai school. And uh, the Soto has always emphasized our original enlightenment that we all have in common, and we've never been without whereas the, the Rinzai school emphasizes the need to awaken to our original, our innate enlightenment. Sometimes uh, scholars say that uh, Soto, the Soto school is more for farmers, for the, the involving the patience and, and faith that is required of farmers to just stick stick with it and and the faith that uh, this it's working, and and it eventually will end up in awakening. Whereas in the Rinzai school, it was uh, they say the Rinzai school is more for generals. It's a more vigorous um, practice, well, more ferocious practice, uh, where the the emphasis is very strongly on. Uh, awakening to it, not just to uh, think that, okay, I've, I'm innately enlightened, that sounds good, all right, so I'll just sort of coast along and uh, and try to keep my mind free of thoughts. So the Rinzai school is more uh, goal-oriented, uh, more, I might even say, aspirational, uh, the need to become what we already are. It's uh, many articles about Roshi Kaplow have have stated what is pretty obvious, which is was that he was a he was a maverick. Um, but then so was so was his first teacher, Harada Roshi. Harada Roshi uh, didn't see why the Soto school and the Rinzai school uh, had to be always separate. Uh, why you had to choose one or the other, and he he uh, was quite uh, revolutionary uh, in the in the early twentieth century in uh, devising this what what we could call this integral Zen, which is where we we try. He tried, and then his disciples 
Yasutani and Kaplow and I tried to integrate the best of the two schools of the Soto and the Rinzai school. Uh, so he was he was criticized, Harada Roshi, for uh, mixing these two. Roshi Kaplow always used to tell me in private that the Japanese hate mixtures. Um, but uh, Harada Roshi had the the faith and the courage to bring the two together. And so we have this, sometimes in Japanese, called the Sanbo Kyodan, Harada Yasutani line. He was also a maverick, Harada Roshi, that is. This is a little nugget that I <clears throat> hadn't heard before until last weekend to uh, take up the practice of yoga. That um, by and large, uh, the Japanese have developed their own uh, systems of body-mind training and the arts and all. Um, and my impression is that uh, it, it was very unusual, very unusual for Harada Roshi to adopt the practice of <clears throat> Hatha Yoga, the physical, the stretching, the postures. And this served Kaplo well because when when Kaplow uh, arrived in Japan in 1953, he was uh, extremely stiff. Uh, he had to have a chair. Some Harada Roshi found him a chair to sit on. Uh, but then he also, it seems, he learned Hatha Yoga, and he had the motivation to stick with it. And this is another uh, quality to we can revere in, in uh, Philip Kaplow is his self-discipline. A lot of us uh, at some point or other learn some Hatha Yoga postures, but how many of us do it day in and day out? I don't. So, but he had this, Kaplow had this, this, uh, yeah, ferocious self-discipline. I think I never knew a day in my 20, first 20 years with him, that he, he didn't do Hatha Yoga. He probably felt compelled to do it, to stay limber, stay flexible, which, by the way, I've read is that, that flexibility training uh, is non-negotiable as we get older, and he recognized that. It's uh, kind of a, a tragically ironic that then he still succumb to Parkinson's in his old age. So we have Kaplow the, the maverick and the rebel. He was a rebel even as a teenager when he, he formed, he, he founded and became the first president of his, the high school atheist club could see this is a, would be a way of a high school student, especially uh, in the nineteen around nineteen thirty, would it be? Yeah, late nineteen twenties, to stick a thumb in the eye of the high school authorities. At that time, it was much less uh, common, certainly less fashionable than it is now to be an atheist. Well, he tried it out for a while. After all, he was an adolescent. He tried that for a while. And um, after first doing some, uh, considering himself an agnostic, uh, and then 
that uh, that ideology, that position of having no use for religion, uh, came to a screeching halt through his four months at uh, the Nuremberg trials, where he was the chief court reporter of the Nuremberg trials, and he was shredded emotionally by the testimony he heard in that courtroom. He used to quote someone else, I forget who, who said, all true religion begins with a cry, help. His, uh, what he considered his sophisticated uh, position of atheism, um, when he it was exposed to all of that in that trial, it just crumbled. Maverick, rebel, and clearly, just sort of by definition, given what he did, a pioneer, an explorer. Let's 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 just do a little meditation on on uh, what what he did. So he he goes back to Japan uh, and spends thirteen years there. And he receives a formal certificate of, of Kensho, uh, but not formal Dharma transmission, what the Japanese call Inca, because he got into a uh, conflict with Yasutani Roshi and uh, never never went on to the more the, the f- further collections of koans. Uh, so he came came here uh, found this group this group in Rochester that invited him to settle here and somewhere in there the mid 60s 65 66 he uh, got in this tangle with his teacher Yasutani Roshi who had his own headstrong personality, character, and um, could not uh, could not abide the rebelliousness of his disciple, Kaplo. Yasutani Roshi uh, was uh, fiercely um, opposed to communism. And my reading uh, in preparation for last weekend, uh, they traced it back to uh, the again the Russo-Japanese War, where the J- Japanese came out on the, the short short end of the stick, and uh, Yasutani apparently uh, just then developed a deep suspicion of Russians uh, through communism, or vice versa. And uh, and then here we have Kaplo with his certificate of, of awakening um, and permission to teach. We have that too in our files and in, in uh, Yasutani's own hand calligraphy. Um, and he comes back here to a country 
radically different than what he had left in 1953. The 60s were busting out all over the place, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the Vietnam War. Uh, Can you imagine the, after 13 years in a very, very different culture, what it took for him to get his footing here to come back to the United States in the mid-60s. The story that I'd always heard until our 50th reunion, the the, the story I'd always heard about the breakup, the, the, the split between Yasutani and Kaplow, was um, there was only one specific issue that I ever heard, even from Roshi Kaplow himself, was that... Uh, Roshi Kaplow recognized the need to translate uh, the Prajnaparamita into English. The Prajnaparamita that had been uh, translated into the, the, the tongue of, of every Buddhist country. The Chinese have their, their translation of the Prajnaparamita. The Indians, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Vietnamese. And uh, I guess it came down to a question of... of uh, the speed with which such a such a transition happens, where Kaplow uh, felt this we needed to do this sooner. We needed to to in getting out of the gate, uh, we had to right out of the gate. We had to have this translation of the Prajnaparamita, which we still have to this day, and other. Uh, I think I think I'm not sure. I haven't done any surveys, but I think most uh, Zen centers in this country have English translations of the Prajnaparamita and, and some of the other chants that aren't precisely the same as ours, but that's uh, just the way it is. So he, that's what I'd always heard. It was it was uh, him wanting to translate uh, the Prajnaparamita into English when Yastani Roshi felt it was too soon. I think you could, I've heard um, another take on this, is it just Yastani Roshi wanting to maintain control of this fledgling Zen center here. And we see here quite a quite a collision course, these two strong-minded uh, and yes, pretty autocratic uh, men uh, were on. But what I learned at the 50th anniversary was that the real issue, I won't go into detail about the source of this, uh, it was uh, one of the uh, chief uh, assistants to Roshi Kaplow when I came here in 1970. His name was Hugh Curran. But he he was in between Yasutani and Kaplow at that time. He was actually going back and forth. He had been a student of, of Yasutani, and uh, so Yasutani would, would send him to Kaplow to tell him this or that, and then Kaplow would send Hugh back to Ka- Yasutani to tell him his reply. And, uh, and what Hugh said was, it was Kaplow's opposition to the Vietnam War. That was the issue. And this highlights another East-West difference, is that historically, uh, the, the Confucian countries of East Asia have uh, been more ready to uh, fall in line with the government's position, that uh, political dissent and social activism was 
from everything I've read, is all but unknown, has been all but unknown in China and Japan. You you risk your life if you if you oppose to the emperor's will. And so this is one of the, the, the big changes, big differences uh, Roshi and I have had to, and every American Zen teacher have had to negotiate, is, uh, is this, um, how much do you, do you um, subordinate your own instincts, your own intuition about the timing, in this case, the timing of translations, how much do you subordinate that to the... Uh, your teacher or others in a position of authority. It's a very, very, very painful breakup. From what I could tell, Yasutani Roshi was something of a father figure to Kaplow. Uh, I got the impression uh, that uh, Kaplow did not have the happiest childhood. His parents fought bitterly, and uh, his father. I uh, in my years with with uh, Roshi Kaplow at his side, working with him as his secretary, working with him on his books. I would hear a few references to his mother, uh, but I don't remember anything referring to his father. So he he really latched on to Yasutani in Japan, and uh, it was a pretty traumatic break. In, in one of Roshi Kaplow's books, he says the following, Everyone, enlightened or not, to one degree or another is hostage to their own culture. And this is a handicap for foreign teachers, whatever, whatever the country is. After the foreign teacher has helped us, helped us all they can, then the burden will be on the Western teachers to carry on in a way that will fit our culture. We had a Japanese uh, Roshi here in the uh, early 70s, I think. Sogen Roshi was his name from Okinawa. And uh, during the question period, uh, we were telling him about all the problems we were having uh, in those days. And uh, at one point he said, don't worry, the first hundred years are the hardest. (laughs) What a monumental project. To, to adapt Zen to Western culture. When you consider what, what, what the headwinds um, are involved, uh, to, to indigenize Zen in America, uh, just starting with the, the um, American worshiping of individualism, and uh, increasingly in the recent decades, uh, worshiping uh, self-expressive individualism uh, 
through opinions and I mean, it's become uh, just florid online where you just gratuitously uh, signal whether you like or dislike something. Com- compare that to the, the first lines of affirming faith in mind that we chant several times a year. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. Likes and dislikes. This is, this is our currency in the United States. To our own uh, suffering, I believe. But it's, it's, it's who we are, at least without Zen practice and training. It's how we seem to feel we have to define the self is through our opinions, our likes and dislikes, our, our choices, our consumer choices and all. So that's a big one. He came, he came here to a country, a Judeo-Christian country, um, that had l- little um, tradition of uh, contemplative discipline. He came to back to the United States from a country which women were in a very subordinate position and had been for many, many centuries. He came back to a democratic country that emphasized egalitarianism, equality, from a country in which hierarchy, uh, based on rank, uh, seniority, obedience, these are autocracies, to come back here. From a, from a country, a culture, Confucian culture, where the classics were uh, revered above all else and where traditionalism uh, was, was preeminent. Coming to a country where innovation and creativity are, are, are so strong. There's a, there's a book from, uh, I don't know, 30, 30 or 40 years ago called Habits of the Heart. It's a deep dive into the American temperament, American character. There's a lot of uh, quotations by uh, de Tocqueville. Um, and in the book talks about the the to the conflict in this country between fierce individualism and our urgent need for community and our commitment to one another. Um, Another way of putting it is our private life and our private needs versus our public responsibilities. De Tocqueville himself said that the democratic citizen's concern for individual advancement and security versus uh, religious and political participation. This is an ongoing uh, project of its own now. So here he is with no map. Kaplow, 1965-66, 
no map about how this can possibly work in the United States. He told me once that when he wrote The Three, Three Pillars of Zen in Japan, it was published in 65, I think, that he never dreamed that there would be more than a few Zen teachers in the United States. That's why it is such a practical manual for Zen practice, so that even if there were almost no teachers, himself and who, who knows how many others, that at least the book, people could work with the book and uh, learn how to do Zen meditation. So really, he had to navigate by the stars when he came here. And I would say, and I think he would agree with me, that the, the three stars to navigate by, then and now and forever, are what we call uh, in Buddhism the three essentials. The three essentials are meditation, the precepts or, or ethics, and awakening. And, and this is kind of points to our upcoming uh, ceremony on the precepts, what the Japanese call Jukai. Um, and we'll be in, in my next two Teishos, I will go further into uh, what that means, what Jukai is, what that ceremony is. The, the title of my talk at Duke was... Uh, Philip Capolo, planting seeds while trailing vines. It's a wonderful saying in Japan, a phrase, trailing vines, where we, we bring our conditioning with us, our habit forces. Uh, he was in the unique position of, of having arrived in, in Japan with already with American imprinting. He was 42, I think, 41, when he went to Japan. So he was thoroughly American, uh, but then to spend all that time and have new, another layer of conditioning and have to come back and work through that. Here's some of the forms, the changes in form that he made uh, and we continue to make. Uh, one is this, this variety, this uh, abundance of cushions, different size and thicknesses of cushions that we can use to sit in the zendo. I was at uh, two two temples in Japan, uh, three months at each one. One of them, uh, the only you only had one thing uh, you could use, which was a single round cushion. That's all, a single round cushion at each place, and you did the best you could. The other one was about the same. It was a, a futon, a rolled up futon. Uh, we would sleep in the zendo. You'd unroll the futon at night and sleep on it. And then in rolling it up, you'd use that rolled up part as your cushion. Again, one cushion. And this is one of the changes that uh, that we've had to make is to go from the Japanese reverence, I think is not too strong a word, the reverence for physical adversity, pain, as, as a way to break through uh, one's barriers, one's psychological barriers, and as a transforming thing. But, but it, it couldn't be more different in this country where the dominant ethic is that, that uh, 
pain is to be avoided at all costs. And so we, he knew enough, and we still know enough, not to go against the grain of our own, our own culture. And so we provide this, these many kinds of cushions that people can use. <clears throat> and uh, great, it means people are more likely to sit when they have, uh, they can sit more comfortably with these cushions, or even a chair. Here's another one that I recognize as unusual about the Rochester Zen Center early on, which is our use for meals, our use of plates and forks and spoons and knives. At many American Zen centers that I've been to, uh, you would always use chopsticks and you would use orioki. Orioki is the nesting bowls that uh, are always used in Japan for eating. Three or sometimes five nesting bowls that you wash yourself and store in a little cubbyhole. But why should we? Why should we do that in this country? Eat with chopsticks and orioki? Well, the answer is that it's a wonderfully, elegantly simple way to manage your stuff uh, for meals, and and you can't deny that. But it's not us. And people who, who those people, Zen centers who use this, um, they they acknowledge. I mean, they recognize how how nice and simple it is to have your own little bowls and chopsticks. You just wipe with your napkin for the next meal. Um, but I think what they don't recognize is there's this exotic quality that can be uh, so enticing when. And the, the, you, once you've learned how to use these uh, nesting bowls and the chopsticks and all, then you belong to the inner circle, and there's a certain pride that comes from that. And, uh, well, I don't think we need that. Let's use our own uh, devices for eating. We continue to work on uh, finding English translations for Japanese words. This, too, at the uh, Zen centers I've been in, other Zen centers, it's... Are a lot more Japanese words, and some of them we can't really translate. I think the Roksu, uh, we still use the word doksan, we use the word teisho because there really isn't any what what Roshi and I feel felt was adequate translations, but we're still finding new ones. Another one of the edicts that uh, in Japan that Roshi would often quote is never explain never explain. And so it would be it would be typical to go into a Japanese temple and without even knowing how to sit and just be told to go sit. Good luck, sucker. Go sit. <laughs> and and uh and that's that's not who we are. Uh Americans I'm I'm yes I'm I'm drawing on generalizations here, but I stand by them. Americans tend to want explanations before they feel the confidence to move ahead with any particular method. And so we have these introductory workshops, and we have explanations in the Zendo. We have orientations for new people to help them uh, navigate in this really its own our own culture here. We have uh, fewer bows that we we ask people to do here than in other Zen centers in the United States. And I'm working on a new ancestral line. I have been for 
quite a while. I hope to introduce it before year's end, where, where again, we don't have to uh, stick to the Soto uh, lineage. Uh, in my in my Taisho's, uh, I I more often read from the uh, Chinese Linqi or Rinzai teachers, and so we're going to uh, integrate uh, the Soto and Rinzai lineages, and um, which is no easy thing, making those decisions. Uh, Japanese lineages, whether not just Rinzai versus Soto, but also within the Soto, uh, the different lineages within Soto and the different lineages within Rinzai, are notoriously uh, rivalrous. Um, I think this goes back to feudal Japan, where you had the the, the feudal lord, the daimyo, who had had his own vassals who had to swear eternal fealty, allegiance to him. And, uh, and this is another thing that we can, we found that we can, uh, move beyond when, and the most obvious, uh, presentation of this is our American Zen Teachers Association, which we have the inaugural meeting here in Rochester, the AZTA, and it's still a yearly meeting where people from all the different lineages and schools and centers come together, this collaborative uh, approach is is would be unheard of in Japan. But maybe above all, not above all, but but another thing that Roshi Capital exemplified was this this respect for upright conduct, the necessity of upright conduct. Remember, one of the three essentials, ethics or morality, the precepts, and how it doesn't matter what kind of experiences you've had, awakening or, or otherwise, if they, if they aren't um, confirmed, if that, that wisdom is not confirmed through upright conduct, it has to be suspect, uh, suspected as invalid or inadequate. And there is this tendency among some Japanese teachers to say, okay, once once you get your awakening experience, you've seen into the emptiness of all morality, which is valid, that's half the truth, is moral, moral systems are constructs of people of different cultures, and fundamentally, like all other phenomena, are empty. But at the same time, uh, we we uphold the precepts, we endeavor to uphold the precepts so as not to cause unnecessary harm to others. It's that simple. And and some of these teachers, and this is also uh, in, in the Tibetan teachers, not so much the Chinese or Korean. Uh, this is this in these countries, uh, the, the ethical conduct has always been extremely important. Uh, but you, you, it isn't enough to have some experience of emptiness or any other. It has to be, uh, has to manifest in uh, respect for others. Well, <clears throat> there was more as usual, but uh, 
We run out of time, so I will stop now and recite the four vows. Okay. 